One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Paul Hayward, the author and columnist, and Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst. Seconds out, round two. Manchester City face Liverpool at Wembley in the FA Cup semi-final on Saturday. What do they have left in the tank after Wednesday night's European exertions? City showed a streetwise, combative aspect of their collective character in Madrid. Liverpool were, by contrast, almost carefree in completing the formalities against Benfica. Logically, City, beset by what seemed to be significant injuries to Kevin De Bruyne and Kyle Walker, will be at a disadvantage. But Paul, if anything, with all those psychodramas going on, Will they have a galvanising effect? Possibly, Mike. I think it's really obligatory to look at the, the physical toll that game will have taken on Man City when the, when the adrenaline wears off from the sheer physical intensity of it and the pugilistic intensity of it, let's face it. They would have been in fight-or-flight mode in the second half and certainly after the game and at the end of the game when it all, all went off. They handled themselves, defended themselves very well, very cleverly. There was a sense of unity, sense of strength about them. They will be, you know, buoyed by that. But at the same time, 24, 48 hours later, they'll be looking at themselves physically. And they'll be thinking, I think, less about that game, the Atletico Madrid game, than they will the Liverpool game of last weekend, because that was another intense game in a completely different way. And, I, and the worry, I think, for Man City is that twice in a row now, they've played very intense, pressing teams and found it very difficult for obvious reasons. Who wouldn't? Liverpool pressed them, you know, madly last weekend. Atletico Madrid in the second half last night really went at them, went after them to the point where they didn't look like Man City anymore. They couldn't keep the ball, control the ball, control the game in the second half. So you put those two games together... And, it, and it's going to be difficult, however good they are, it's going to be difficult for Man City to lift themselves again and reorganise and regroup in time for an FA Cup semi-final. Yeah, when you look at it, we're used to praising City for the, you know, the quality of their, their technical performances aid. When you look at a resilient performance like that, you know, with all the provisos that Paul talked about there, about the second half in particular, should that give them a bit more greater respect or even self-respect than some of those great technical performances. 
Yeah, I think it will be just as satisfying, actually. Yeah, because they've proved they can, you know, can take part in 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 a you know head to head duel like that, a real war, and 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 come through it as as a collective. I think that they did show great heart and character and all those qualities that you don't really associate with Manchester City. It's a, it's about their skill and their brilliance on the ball. So it will have a unifying effect, I think, on them, and they'll be stronger for it. But but Paul's right. I mean, physically, there'd be so many bumps and bruises, and and aches and pains off the back of it. You would suspect, and and you look at their bench in that game in Madrid, and it wasn't the strongest. So he doesn't have the luxury of of, of making wholesale changes. Unlike Liverpool, who who rested seven, didn't they? Jurgen Klopp got away with it, thanks to sort of that 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 solid first leg lead against Benfica. So yeah. I must admit, 24 hours ago, I was leaning towards Manchester City for this FA Cup semi-final because I thought they shaded the game at the Etihad and they they still look for me just just slightly the better team. But what's happened in midweek has has flipped it around for me, and I think that 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 those physical and mental exertions of that game and the one at the Etihad might just be too big a negative for City to overcome at the weekend. Mm. Let's look at the potential impact of those potential absences. Kevin De Bruyne, Paul, I was looking at social media this morning. There's a really fascinating thread by a guy called Gear Jordé, who's a uh, football psychology researcher. And his programme had a camera on Kevin De Bruyne in the first leg against Atletico. And they were searching for reasons for his extraordinary awareness. And one of that was the whole idea of scanning the pitch. And he scanned the pitch prior to receiving the ball at a rate of 0.45 scans per second. In other words, four or five scans every 10 seconds. When you come up with statistics like that, you'll get into the essence of how important the player he is to Manchester City, aren't you? You are, because he's the player who he plays with his head up, he plays instinctively, he sees the whole pitch, as you say, and he will play the ball, the through ball, in a team without a number nine, let's not forget. That makes it harder for him, really, to pick out a player, a team full of false nines. He is the one that can open a team up. I I love that image of him. He's striding down the middle of the pitch, and without breaking stride, he sweeps the ball left or right, round a defender, into the path of an oncoming oncoming player. And very, very few people can do that. He's at the absolute highest class. And as I say, I, my preference would be for Man City to play with a proper striker. In the absence of one, Kevin De Bruyne's playmaking is absolutely vital. And it worried me to see him with ice on his ankle because, of course, he started the season or ended last season with ankle trouble. Had an operation, I think, had a slow start to the season, finding his form again, but if if he if he's got a another ankle injury, that's that's a worry. And by the way, I thought that he was outstanding against Liverpool, who didn't seem to have an answer to him. I, I felt that they were very focused, as they often are, Liverpool, on just using their strengths to go and hurt the opposition. They didn't seem to have a plan for De Bruyne, and and they got away with it to to a certain degree because it, it wasn't just that one occasion where he strode through on the wrong side of a midfielder. It happened several times. And and for me, he would be the difference maker in the game. Now, he's not definitely out, is he? We don't know that yet. He, he does have strong powers of recovery. If there was one player, I think, that Pep 
would would take a slight gamble on it would be it would be De Bruyne because he he can yeah he can be the difference in the game on Sunday. Mm. What about the defensive elements of it, Paul? Do you think they might risk now Ruben Diaz returning at Wembley? That injury to Carl Walker did look quite long-term, didn't it? Now, you could probably put John Stones, who was notably mature in Madrid, to a right-back type of role. Will it be a decisive factor in the game, do you think, given the Liverpool strength up front, that, that City have got to get their defensive balance right? I think they'll be okay, really, on that front because that was one of John Stones' best performances for Manchester City, that's that's for sure. And I thought Nathan Ake, when he came on, was outstanding at, at left-back. He, he, he did his job brilliantly. He was absolutely impossible to pass. He, he was tremendous. And, of course, because Cancelo can play on either side, I think they have enough, given, given that Stones is in such good form and they've got Laporte, they, they've got enough fit, good defenders not to have to push Ruben Diaz back in. He's been out for, what, six weeks? So he's, he's it was hamstring trouble. He's nearly ready to come back. But uh, he might risk him. Just obviously it depends what, the, what the, the, the medics tell him. But if they can't, if he can't play, what I'm saying is I think they've got enough good players at the back to, to make and mend, amend and make do. Yeah. What about, you know, we're talking about mature performances in Madrid. You know, we saw a little bit of the the devil in Phil Foden, didn't we? What about his maturity under duress aid? What did that tell you about him? <laughs> yeah, he'll be better for the experience, won't he? It wasn't the nicest experience, but um, I mean that challenge on him was uh, that was <laughs> naughty, wasn't it? That that was that was very deliberate, and and the referee needs to take a long hard look at himself, and uh, you know he's got you've got to recognise the difference between you know, a, a regulation foul and something that's a little bit extra. And uh, the one that, that, that floored him was, yeah, fell in, fell into the extra category. I think he'll, yeah, he'll be, he'll be stronger for it. It's, yeah, it, it's, it doesn't need toughening up. He's a tough boy, isn't he? He's a tough boy and he's going to have to get used to, used to the rough treatment. They certainly went after him. I think it, it is a sign of respect, yeah, it's it's just something he'll have to live with, but but yeah, he'll be fine. Liverpool won't 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 treat him in the same way. It wouldn't surprise me actually if if Foden Foden's on the bench for this game because they they will have to re- sort of rest and rotate, and and we know that they've they've got enough players. Well, no, not not a lot of players. But they've got enough players to to give him a breather and to bring him off the bench here. But yeah, it, he'll come through it. I think in general, Manchester City will be galvanised by the experience of facing Atletico Madrid. I'm not one of these that is going to sit here and say they're a disgrace to football, it's anti-football, you know, it's shocking. I kind of liked it. I I love the night and shade. I love having heroes and villains. Football is about creating stories. It's about clashes of styles. And and football, we would all lose interest in football if every team played pretty, attractive, nicey-nicey football. So, so to get this old-fashioned, you know, sort of head-to-head, you know, nasty v good, if you like. And City aren't angels. Let's get that right as well. But, but let's just, for the sake of this, say, you know, good v evil. I, I thought it's what made the game, and 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 I loved it. And that dressing room afterwards for City will have been more united 
by coming through that that you know that you know that batter ground. So yeah, they're in good shape, but this cup semi-final you fear might come a little bit too soon because the aches and pains won't have gone away. Yeah. Well, I, you know, talking about that dressing room afterwards, I would think quite a few people were queuing up to um, pat Zinchenko on the back. Now, he, look, he might look about 12 years old, but the way that he protected Phil Foden, was, I thought, was fantastic. Um, it's normal, though, isn't it, Mike? I, th- I think you just protect your mate. It's like, hang on. You can't just drag him off the pitch. He's, he's, he's injured or he's been, he's been knocked over. It, it's, I think it's an involuntary reaction. I don't think... You know, Zinchenko would see it as a big deal. I think most subs, if they were in that vicinity, would have got involved there. Because mm. you you look after your mates in, in football. And, and yeah, Atletico were beginning to lose it. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> it, in a way, I think the City players will look back and have a laugh about it. Mm. It's, 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 it's kind of fun. Football's so sanitised now. A little bit of aggro. I think, I think they would have loved it in, in many respects. Well, I noticed Sterling and Grealish were having a really good laugh after the game and pointing at things and saying, "Did you see what he did there?" And yeah, um, yeah. and because yeah, because because none of it was was it was just on that line, and it was all a lot of sneaky stuff and a lot of physical stuff. And Foden took a real battering, as we've said, but it was just about it was close enough to the line of of Panto for it to be sort of more enjoyable than reprehensible. It was it was both in a sense, and and the referee was. Was weak on occasions, particularly particularly in that first instance where where Foden was smashed in the head and from behind. That's just dangerous play, and that should have been a yellow card, and maybe that would have sent a signal. But um, and the stuff in the tunnel afterwards, when uh, when it was the, the hold me back uh, routine in the in the um, tunnel afterwards, I noticed there was actually a metal rail running down between the two teams, so they couldn't they couldn't have got at each other anyway. But they made a brilliant theatrical job of pretending they were they were about to smash each other to smithereens, you know. <laughs> I must have. I'd love to have a heart rate monitor on Simeone at that moment. <laughs> um, just you know, to bring it back to the sort of you know the practical realities of it, Paul. You know, we talked about City's injuries. Liverpool. Jurgen Klopp said this week that this is the strongest squad that he has had. Is that type of depth? And um, we saw Canate again at Anfield on Wednesday night. You know, he's being rotated in and out. Firmino, probably fifth choice now, striker, scoring twice. Is that depth the essence of modern football now? Yes, I think so. And I, I do feel that Liverpool's squad is now deeper and stronger than Man City's because Man City have a, have a, have a type of player that they can um, bring off the bench generally, but Liverpool have a greater variety of player that they can deploy and and I think that gives uh, Jurgen Klopp a, a tremendous advantage, and it's to his credit as well that he's 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 built up those different types of strengths that he can call on in any given situation. So I would have thought that over the summer, Man City would look at their squad and say, "Okay, this is great. You know, we've done really well here, but we need a bit more. We need a bit more variety in in the squad and a bit more and a bit more depth." Yeah, when you think about it, it is so unrelenting, isn't it, Aid? You know, we're obviously also looking at the Premier League run-in. Liverpool are at home to Manchester United on Tuesday. Now, on paper, that's not the most arduous task in the world at the moment, but uh, <laughs> are they going to get through that, do you think? Almost on... on they're going to get through on fumes, presumably physically, but also on tribal fervour. Yeah, of 
Of course, and, and, and the depth we just talked about allows Jurgen Klopp to get two starting 11s in his mind now, doesn't it? He, he will have, have that in his head. He won't be locked in on it, but he'll, he'll have it in mind. It's a funny one because Klopp in the past has, has definitely not taken the FA Cup seriously, certainly not compared to Pep Guardiola. But he, he may well smell blood at the, at the weekend and being at Wembley, being in front of that, you know, being on that huge stage, they certainly won't want to won't want to give it up. So I, I do think that they will go as strong as they can there. He could make four or five changes and still blow Manchester United away. In my, in my opinion, it might be seen as a you know a, a risk to do that. If it backfired, you would, you would, you know, you would look silly, and it, you know they've worked so hard to get back into the title race. But, but I think, I think he will, will use his squad across these two games. And yeah, I, just, I think Liverpool are in a, a, an unbelievable position here to to produce one of the most historic and successful campaigns in their history. They have an unbelievable squad. And, and the mentality to, to win trophies. I, th- I think they can do something special. Yeah. City, meanwhile, are at home to Brighton on Wednesday, Paul. I'm sure you'll be following that one. You know, given the standards that, that Aid was talking about there, is perfection in the run-in not merely possible, but essential? I guess so. When you think about that incredible stat that there was one point between Liverpool and Manchester City over the last, was it four years, I think? Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I think that's the best football stat I've ever seen, actually, where they, they got 380 points or something each, you know. I think it was 338, uh, 337 or something like was that. It? Was yeah, it? Something yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, that's, and, and that tells you everything about the rivalry, and that's why I think... That's one argument for saying it's it's the best rivalry the Premier League has seen. There are lots of other arguments for saying that, you know, the, the, the Ferguson-Wenger rivalry was better, the Invincibles versus Man United, all the rest of it. You could argue forever. But the closeness of these two teams and the contrast in the styles, which which to me is what makes it so fascinating, you know, when, on, when they're on the same pitch together, it's completely compelling to see them try to beat each other in different ways and negate each other in different ways. So... To answer your question, in, in, in theory, given all that context, only perfection is going to be good enough to, to, to knock the other side over. Yeah, City have, City have beaten all of their remaining opponents in the reverse fixtures. So whether that counts for much or not, who knows? Liverpool have dropped two points against their future opponents. That was Spurs, who played very well, I remember, in the game at White Hart, not White Hart Lane, at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. So, so yeah, I think... Liverpool's hardest game is Spurs at home. City's hardest game is West Ham away. And, uh, you know, they'd both be overwhelming favourites to win those matches, even though they're their toughest. So, yeah, I, th- I think perfection might be might be required. Mm. What about the prospects for the, the Champions League semi-finals? Uh, you know, I know it's in a couple of weeks' time. Villarreal uh, await Liverpool, Paul. You know, they're unbeaten in 13 Champions League or Europa League knockout games. And that does suggest that Bayern underestimated them. And are we also guilty of underestimating Unai Emery, do you think? Well, we are on the basis of his um, of his Arsenal record. You know, he walked into a very unusual and difficult set of circumstances there. He walked into a maelstrom, really. Uh, he walked in there as a, as, as a good coach and... 
sometimes it's not enough to be a good coach in charge of a club that needs structural change and where the wrong people are in the wrong jobs. You can be as good as you like as a coach, but you hit these obstacles and that's what happened to him. And he came out of there with a thousand yard stare, really, you know, because um, it was too much and it, and it, and it just, uh, and he got blown away by it. But his, his record prior to that point made it obvious that he was an extremely good European, would he call him an A-lister? Well, he's difficult to know until you see him in the later rounds of the Champions League but certainly in his in his echelon he's an absolutely you know first-rate coach and he's proving that now with Villarreal. Mm. Almost a you know complete diametrically opposed club in terms of stature and probably strategy is, is Real Madrid. Now they're, wait, they're awaiting City uh, aid. You know does their mystique endure you know despite all the pretensions of Florentino Perez and the Super League ambitions. And in a strange way, did that win over Chelsea summarise the strengths of the Champions League and why the Super League's not needed? Yeah, I think... I think... I love the Champions League, especially the knockouts. It's The Champions League, in my opinion, is the highest standard of football on earth. I don't think we get to see better quality football than we do in the latter stages of the Champions League. And... And, and and the jeopardy of these knockout games just makes them makes them special. And and I know they played each other last year, Chelsea and Real Madrid, but it's just not a fixture we we've seen that much over the years. And we don't need to see it every single year. I think that what what made what makes these ties special is the is the fact that it's it's you know it, they don't happen too often. Um, it was it was a glorious night. It really was. And, yeah, the, the the world, the, this country, it's not in a good place at the moment. There are so many reasons to feel down in the dumps. So many reasons to feel as as if everything's going wrong. But this, that night, that match was just so absorbing that you just forgot about it, didn't you? you? It was just like this is brilliant. This is why we love football. This is why the Champions League is 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 the one competition that everyone on the planet wants to be a part of. So so yeah, it was it was glorious. It really was. And yeah, I I, I, I felt sorry for Chelsea because I th- I thought their performance merited going through, but but in the same breath the way that Real Madrid came back from being sort of flawed, you know, not once, not twice, but three times, was equally impressive, actually. And we saw, you know, the pass of the season. We saw, you know, maybe the player of the season in terms of the Champions League in in Karim Benzema. Yeah, when you think about, you know, we've knocked around a bit, haven't we, Paul? Too much. Yeah, too much, perhaps. Yeah, we, we show the scars. With Modric, that pass, can you ever remember a better pass than that? I'm, I, I've tried to and I can't. No, I loved it because he's he's one of my idols in football. I, th- I think he's one of the great midfield players of the last 20 or 30 years. But you don't necessarily associate him with those outrageous moments. And I watched that, I looked at that pass 10, 15, 20 times. And what a normal player would have done is perhaps tapped it onto his left and then tried to kind of scoop it over to his mate, you know, running in on the kind of far post. He didn't do that. Hit that with the outside of his right boot. That's a that's a pot shot to most people, isn't it, to most players. That could go anywhere. You could embarrass yourself playing that pass. 
but it rose, it dipped, and it landed exactly where, if you were designing a perfect pass, it would have landed, and it just floated. It was like poetry in motion. And so from start to finish, it, it was an audacious thing to do. It was brilliantly executed, and it resulted in this, you know, fantastic finish. So it's no wonder the whole world was looking at it and saying, Christ almighty, you know, I could watch that over and over again. <laughs> yeah, yeah with, with Chelsea, you know, and you rightly praise them there, Aid. Can they recreate that sort of intensity and mentality that they showed in, in Madrid on Sunday at Wembley when they're playing Crystal Palace in the other semi-final, FA Cup semi-final? Yeah, I think they can. Well, yeah, those kind of nights are very special. and You, you should probably treat them in, in isolation. If they'd have gone through there, Chelsea, I think it would have been one of the great away performances by any English club in European competition. It was that good. You know, the precision, the mentality, the confidence. They owned they owned the match really up until late on in it. There was so much to admire. There's a long enough gap, I think, between then and Sunday for them to regroup, to get themselves going again. And, and the bottom line is their season is now the FA Cup, isn't it? They're going to finish third. To, to Thomas Tuchel isn't unreal manager when it comes to cup, cup, cup competitions. I mean, his record is is just stunning. So they'll be ready for it. Palace will, will be stubborn opposition. Vieira has proven himself to be a really smart tactical coach. But but Chelsea are, are an excellent team with a, with a fabulous manager who thrives on these kind of occasions. So, yeah, they, they'll be ready for it. And, yeah... No matter who they put out on the pitch, I, th- I think you have to make them strong, strong favourites. Mm. You know, we we saw with Timo Werner, Paul, a player, you know, bereft of, of of confidence more than anything else. Is he, do you think, now finding his niche? And is this almost, you know, a beneficial side effect of the issue issues that continue to swirl around Lukaku? I'm still reserving judgment on Timo Werner. I must say I'm I'm a a sceptic because the the pattern of him not taking his chances, the pattern of his low confidence has been is too well established for you to think that uh, it's been cured in two games. I I hope it has, but all the evidence and all the stats show that you know that he hasn't been able to make the transition. That that he's not essentially sorry to say it, but he's not good enough to play for Chelsea in that. Position. I hope I hope I'm wrong because some people take longer to adjust than others. Given that Chelsea seem to have pretty much not given up on Lukaku, but they've definitely you know shunted him out of the picture. That that should open the way for Werner. If he's put it this way, if he's if he's got it in him, this is his opportunity to say, "Don't sell me in the summer. I can still prove to you that I was worth you know 47 million quid." And he has to do it in every game now, not once every three games. But there were some promising signs, but I, I, just, I just don't feel he has the conviction or the consistency in front of goal for you to think he's the answer for Chelsea. Mm. What about um, you know, Chelsea's refusal to allow Conor Gallagher to play in that semi-final aid? You know, they've got the right to do so, but do the loan rules, do you think, require some form of revision here? I don't think so, personally. I, I think that the gap between the Premier League and the EFL is substantial enough to to make it necessary, really, for, for really good players that aren't getting game time 
at their parent clubs to to go out on loan at a level where they belong, and that's and that's Conor Gallagher has proved he he belongs in the Premier League. He's he's been exceptional. I don't see that big a deal. I don't. I mean, it's twice two games a season. You can't play against your employers. Yeah, but isn't yeah? You know, I'm, I'm going to be naive here, right? Eh? But mm. you know, my view is if he's on loan, he's on loan. If it, mm. that that means play parent club, you play against it's your parent weirder. club. Isn't that weirder? Isn't that weird though? I think I think that then you you've you put too much pressure on the player because the player say what he scored the winner for Palace against the club that that pays his wages. That's an awkward situation for him to go back into. I mean, potentially. I mean, most fans would just welcome him back and say, brilliant, I'm glad you're on our side again. But there are, you know, some people that might hold it against him. And I I think that that puts a player in a really awkward position mentally ahead of the game. In a way, he obviously doesn't want to miss it, but it, it might be better to step aside because it's too weird. It would be awkward playing against against Chelsea. So... I just think it's one of those things we we just have to accept and, and put up with that, that that these guys will miss the games against their employers. I don't have a problem with it, and yeah, in a way, Gallagher might not have that big a problem with it either. Mm, yeah, I'm not so sure. You know, if I was in this position, I'd want to play to prove a point. You know, and of course you, you would. Know. Don't get me wrong. Of course he wants to play and prove a point, but it's I don't know. I just think it opens up things. Say he played badly. Say had an absolute stinker. Crystal Palace fans would be potentially might be quick to jump on him, you know, saying, "Oh yeah, you, did, you, you, you didn't want to upset Thomas Tuchel." It, it, it is, it's not ideal, but I think it's just something we have to we have to accept. I think another angle on it is that if Chelsea are going to use and clubs like Chelsea are going to use smaller clubs to develop their players for them. They're going to have to accept there's a jeopardy involved there. You can't have it both ways and say, well, we'll send him to Chelsea, well, to Crystal Palace to toughen him up, but, but he's not going to play against us, you know. I think, I think that should be a part of the cost, the risk of loaning players out. And I think I'm with you, Mike. I, I, I think he should play, and I think he should play like Chelsea are the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, I can see that argument. I really can, but... Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's an awkward. I don't think it's clear cut. Mm. What about Palace, Paul? You know, it's a club recalibrating through youth. You know, you see people, you know, good good recruitment. Elise, Eze, you know, Mitchell's come through into the England team. Again, in modern football, is this almost counterproductive in many ways? Because Palace now, you know, a bit like Southampton in the past, they're going to get cherry picked, aren't they? I guess they are, yes. <laughs> That's the last thing they want to do is, is become a, a club that creates a good environment environment for people to develop and then leave and go somewhere else. Uh, but then, you know, there would be that risk, whoever you were, any club that does that, a well-run club, it's the same with, you know, Crystal Palace's great rival, Brighton. That That is a hazard of the of the industry and the business, but I don't think it should knock Palace off course. They, they've, they've redirected themselves post-Roy Hodgson and they've invested in something else and something more, you know, progressive and long-term. And and I just hope they carry on with it and that the good players that they're developing stay there and, and reap the benefit of that. Leicester are the example, aren't they? Leicester have been, they've developed good players or bought well, sold for huge profits, and they've still thrived and survived and, and won, they won the FA Cup. You know, they, they are the 
beacon, aren't they, for, for clubs like Palace. It, you can't expect... Tyrick Mitchell, I've seen him in the flesh now a couple of times. So I've seen him a lot lately. I didn't realise how good he is. He's such a good defender. A little bit like Cucurella at Brighton. Paul, you'll know about him. Mm. Outstanding defensive left-backs. They will move on. They will. And, and But it... it there's no reason for it to derail Brighton or Palace. They've just got to reinvest those funds wisely and shrewdly and, and keep going and gr- build up in the way that Leicester did, you know, to to not just win the league, but to sort of stick around am- among the big boys. I, th- I think it is possible with smart management and joined up thinking. Leicester are the most joined up club around, aren't they? In mm. terms of the hierarchy and the management team and the players. They're a family. They're all... They're on the same page. The likes of Palace and Brighton, I feel, are quite similar in, mm. in a way, and, and and they can they can aspire to to to, to be like Leicester. Mm. Yeah, Chelsea are at home to Arsenal on Wednesday. Aid, you've got, you look at Arsenal now, and they're faltering at precisely the wrong time. What do they need from say the next Goals. two? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we're looking at Lacazette there, aren't we? You know, from the next two away games, they're at Southampton on Saturday before going to the bridge. They need at least four points from those two games, don't they? They do, yeah. Four, four points minimum. Six would be great. Yeah, it's it's unlu- it's unfortunate. The injuries to Thomas Partey and Kieran Tierney have had a, a big effect. There's no one to replace Kieran Tierney at left-back, unfortunately, so which means sort of unbalancing the team. And, and Thomas Partey is a very unique player who was in very good form prior to his injury. So, yeah, that's been painful. But the bottom line, I think, is with Arsenal is that this was always going to be the gamble. They had that slimmed down squad. They needed all the key players to stay fit until the end of the season. And they needed Lacazette to come good. And unfortunately, that that hasn't happened until this point. You know, he looks less like scoring at the moment, Alexander Lacazette, than at any other stage this season, which is a real shame. The the attacking midfield brilliance of, of Smith-Rowe, Saka and Erdegaard, can, it carried the team through the winter brilliantly and, and their goals and performances were, were phenomenal. But it's unsustainable to expect those guys to score enough goals to propel you to the top four finish that they need. So, yeah, they needed... Everyone to stay fit. They needed Lacazette to, to to hit a hot streak in front of goal and and neither has happened. And and for that reason, they are huge underdogs now, I think, to to make top four. And it hurts me to say it. Because I think they've been a better team than Tottenham for almost the entirety of this campaign. They, they, I think they are a more rounded, more promising side than Spurs. But for the reasons I've outlined, they're, they're you know... They're chasing it now. Yeah, yeah. You have to look at it and think that Spurs are, you know, hot favourites for fourth place. They're at home to Brighton in the BT Sports Saturday lunchtime game. Paul, what's your overview of of Spurs in terms of of, of like the collective development of the team under Antonio Conte? Well, it's very interesting this this swing in the pendulum towards Spurs and away from Arsenal because. Um, Conte seemed to spend so much of the season complaining and almost preparing the ground for his own departure, you know, getting his excuses in for when he when it all blew up in the summer. But his his coaching is now having an effect. It, I mean, it helps when Kane and Son are in that kind of form because they can rip teams apart, 
you know, it's an incredible combination. Kuliszewski has been a, a, a great find, just the kind of, you know, talented, committed, hard-edged kind of player that Tottenham needed. When, in January, when he lost a lot of players, Conte was complaining because they hadn't replaced them, numerically, that is, and he was, you know, he seemed to suggest that they'd been weakened by it. In fact, you look at them now and they're stronger than they've been all season. So it's a, it's a classic Conte effect situation, isn't it? He's, he's, he's found a core of players that will do the job for him and a core of players who are doing what he wants them to do. Yeah. Can I just, they look faster and fitter, aren't they? But that's 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 always the the case with the Conte <laughs> team. What I will say about Spurs is they're not they they can't be considered nailed on. They're still flawed. Doherty's absence might hurt them. You know, I don't rate Royale. They've improved at the back, but I don't think they're perfect. You know, an injury to a Bentancur, for example, or one of the front three could have a catastrophic impact on them. And they have been really ruthless. Rather than being, I don't think they look an outstanding team to me, but they are incredibly, they're devastating, aren't they? They're lethal when you when you open the door for them. So, yeah, I, th- I think there's, there's still a prospect for Spurs to, to have a wobble here. But Arsenal aren't playing well enough at the moment to... to convince anyone I don't think that that they're ready to step in when we think about Conte Paul you know we we link him to this cult of managerial personality you know is that phenomenon a good thing or is it a bad thing do you think well I guess it depends on the the context of the club they're working in Mike and at the risk of going off on a tangent, you know, my worry about Ten Hag at Manchester United is that they're appoint they're appointing there a, a technical coach, a, a tactical coach, when what they need is a is a guy to purge and to sort a really rotten dressing room culture out. So, can Ten Hag do that at Manchester United? Will he have the authority when he walks through the door uh, to do that job? And God knows it needs doing. Every Man United fan knows it does. But with Conte. He did have that authority, does have that authority. And he walked into a drifty kind of, a drifty environment, you know, where, and he saw it straight away, Half the, a lot of the players weren't really on it properly, they weren't committed properly, they didn't want to do what the manager told them to do. So, and, you know, he's clearly, that was his, his instinct, is to sort that problem out. And when you've got the players, you know, obeying, behaving, uh, believing in you, it makes the job so much easier. So... So actually, when he walked in there, I thought he's up against it. Can he change this culture round? And and it looks like he's starting to. Although I agree with age, you know, it, Tottenham are never more than uh, ten minutes away from another <laughs> wobble, are they really? <laughs> <laughs> with with the you know the Ten Hag situation, Aid, you know, he's been apparently promised funding, but under that club's current ownership strategy and structure, will his the limits of his power always be restricted. Yeah, I, I agree. Earlier on in this podcast, Paul was talking about Unai Emery being a great coach, but but being sort of overwhelmed by the the work that he needed to do and by the mess that he inherited. And you know, Arsenal were in a bad place; they had people in the wrong roles higher up the food chain, and and it, 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 yeah, he couldn't. No matter how good a coach he was, he couldn't couldn't impose himself and I do feel that is a, a real problem in waiting for, for Eric Ten Hag has he has he got that strength of character that, that personality to 
to to dominate the club like he like he kind of has to i think there's a big 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 question mark there's no doubt about his ability you got to think about man united and they've got a very inexperienced you know ceo very inexperienced technical director very inexperienced director of football kind of all learning on the job and 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 then a, a manager coming in who's ne- not not worked here and and not worked for a a club as gargantuan in size as Manchester United so yeah it's going to be really hard really hard for him no matter how much cash they give him it's going to be really tough he's going to have to be ruthless and make some really hard calls and difficult calls he's going to have to in my opinion sell good players for the greater good just to sort of make that really strong statement I'm here now this is how it's going to be and you're either with me or you're not. That's how he's going to have to go about it. Anything less than that, and I think it'll be a continuation of what we're seeing right now. Yeah, because you know the modern transformative manager. I'm thinking here of Jurgen Klopp. You know, they do make deci- massive decisions almost by by stealth, but they also they they have a, a, a cohesive group around them. Uh, I just want to end, Paul, by ending on on. Klopp, you know, part of the whole managerial shtick, if you like, is basically playing the press conference, playing the media. What did you think of Klopp's complaints about scheduling in the build-up to this week? And did he have a point that maybe that semi-final that we spoke about at the top of the show should have been played at least on Sunday? Yeah, I do. Uh, I'm one of the few who who sympathise with clubs when they managers, top managers, when they complain about scheduling because the scheduling is is crackers. At the same time, the Premier League clubs have just voted for five substitutes for next season and I'm afraid that erases all their complaints because if, if they want to if they want to play 16 players against um, a lesser team, well, they're going to have to live with it. I, 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 but I do think that um, more care needs to be given to, in these very intense periods, and we're seeing one this week, more care needs to be given to the timing and the scheduling of games so that to take the pressure off the players, it's no, there's no other reason than that, is, is, to, is to take the pressure off the players and, and, and give the game, each game, a chance of being as good as it possibly can be. Yeah, yeah I think actually both semi-finals this weekend have got real potential. But I suppose we, we must ask the question, uh, Aidan, it's, it's not a new question, should these semi-finals be being played at Wembley? No, I wish they weren't played at Wembley. And I think I genuinely think even youngsters that can't remember FA Cup semi-finals not being at Wembley, I think even they would would accept that the magic of Wembley is lost by by playing these semi-finals there. It's you've got to keep it preserved. You've got to keep it special. There are so many amazing, huge stadiums around the country now that are well equipped to, to host matches of this magnitude. Wembley, I believe, will be paid for by the end of 2024. I hope that football, you know, pulls together, lobbies the FA to have a change of heart here. And then once that stadium is paid for, that we can go back to to taking it around the country and and, uh, and preserving Wembley for, for the big one. Yeah, because surely, Paul, you know, we shouldn't keep repeating that historic mistake of rebuilding a flawed stadium, you know, in a flawed area, instead of embracing the future by building a new one in a better location. 
No, Wembley, the opulence and scale and the financial burden that came with Wembley was was a mistake in my view. It, it wasn't it wasn't good for the game as a whole. Building a luxury theatre where they built it created this pressure to play games there unnecessarily, and the FA Cup semi-finals were the first victim of that pressure. It was a bad idea at the time, and it's still a bad idea. It's an even worse idea when there's travel chaos and mm. this country this country is not functioning at the moment in in, the, in its infrastructure and travel, and you're and you're asking fans to to take on you know just really terrible burdens to do with getting around the country and that's not fair either so the whole thing needs um rethinking yeah well i i see wembley as a monument to missed opportunity it's a symbol of muddled thinking and sheer self-interest a game with a wider perspective than football might not have made the mistakes which mean we're dealing with avoidable recurring problems with ticketing and transport those problems impact on supporters now apparently the game's all about the fans sorry but with another hassle-filled weekend in prospect you could have fooled me your thoughts as ever are welcome in the meantime thanks to paul and adrian for their insights and thank you for listening to the football writers podcast catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 